I would encourage you to continue those conversations afterwards over coffee. But now we're going to open up the Bible and read from God's Word. So we're turning to the book of John and looking at chapter 20. I'll give you a minute to find it in your Bibles or on your phone. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, MJ, for reading God's word to us and thank you to Sam for filling in the last couple of weeks when I was unwell but it's good to be here. Um, someone mentioned it's nice to have a break in John um, but we've got two weeks left so today uh, and then next Sunday Lord willing we shall finish the gospel of John uh, which has been a delight to, to walk through um, for the past 50 or 60 sermons. So let's, uh, let's pray and um, let's get into the text in front of us. Our Heavenly Father, we're glad to be gathered here today in your name, and we're glad that your Spirit is amongst us, and we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. In your Son's name we pray, amen. Before I was pastoring down here on the coast, I was pastoring up in Brisbane, and uh, there was a young adult in our ministry and um, as I got to know him a little bit better uh, throughout the time we, we spent, um, I, I kind of realized, quite frankly, he was just disinterested in Christianity. Um, he'd grown up in the church. He was in and amongst it. His family was part of it, but he was disinterested. He was disengaged in worship, uh, his desire to read God's word, and um, his, his love for God's people was nearly absent. And um, something was off, and I kind of figured um, that, that he probably had some doubts that this Christian faith that he professed wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And so we had a conversation one day, and I I just asked him, I said, "Uh, has anyone ever kind of allowed you just to voice your doubts about the Christian faith? And his eyes began to well up, and his response was, was, was no. He said to me, that's just not what you do in church. So we got talking some more, and I said, well, 
I believe God meets us where we're at, and we need to be honest with where we're at, and where you're at is where you're at. So, and I want you to know that God has room for you to deal with your doubts. Now, in the Lord's kindness, over the coming months, he truly encountered God. He made space for his doubts. He began to find credible answers. Uh, He began enjoying worship, reading God's Word, and loving God's people, even finding ways that he could contribute financially to the gospel going forward. This guy got changed by the power of the gospel because he was given some breathing room to deal with his doubts and questions. Now, let's just say those doubts remained. Let's say that he wasn't given space or the cultural understanding he had just didn't give room for it to breathe, kind of suppressed inside like a pressure cooker. Let's say, like maybe some people today, you never voice your doubts, but you just keep them swirling around in your head and in your heart. Maybe they're doubts concerning God's existence. Is he real? Maybe there's some doubts around God's goodness. Can I trust him? Maybe it was people's doubts trying to reconcile their education with the gospel story. But what happens when you just keep it all in? Well, I think eventually it bursts. Maybe you've met people like this. They end up just deconstructing their faith. They end up distancing themselves from church and maybe even denying the faith altogether. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe that is in a position where you find yourself today. I think what's, what's more is, is when there is this idea that honest questions about God and honest questions about Christianity, if, if they need to be, uh, remain suppressed, it kind of gives this false idea that, that Christianity is just some kind of religion of blind faith, where everyone's just kind of playing along. In a debate with John Lennox, atheist Richard Dawkins said, we only need to use the word faith when there isn't any evidence at all. That was his wrong understanding. It leads to this idea that Christianity, you just kind of check your brain in at the door, work off feelings, work off nice community, work off personal experiences, and that's enough to believe. Well, that's not the Christianity of the Bible. And John's gospel here couldn't be more explicit. His point and purpose in verse 30 to 31 says as much. And as one commentator pointed out, you can kind of see this purpose of John's book playing out in three movements. Verse 30, you have the evidence. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So that's the evidence, there's signs. 31a, we have then belief, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. How are you to believe? You are to believe because what's been written about the historical Jesus And then 31b, we have experience, and that by believing you may what? Have life in his name. That's kind of the the biblical framework for coming to faith. Look at the evidence, move towards belief, and then experience it. Now, Joe, it's interesting when in our culture, people want to flip that around. They want to have some kind of religious experience that they then look to as a foundation that causes them to believe in God, and then they look for verifying evidence to support this subjective experience. That's not how Christianity works. It's the historical events that we're called to believe by faith, founded and grounded upon history. So three parts looking at this 
um, passage today. First, I want us to see Tom, Thomas's problem, which is doubt. Second, we'll see Jesus' provision, which is to believe. And then John's point for us today is to believe in Jesus through God's word. So let's begin. Jesus, uh, Thomas's problem is doubt. And here I want us to know that there is room for doubt. Look at verse 24. So Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. Notice he's called the twin. He's not called Doubting Thomas, as we've come to know him. Called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So this is the first Sunday evening of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He's shown them his scars. He's extended to them peace. And, he's now, and then he's prepared them for the mission ahead. And yet we find out that Thomas wasn't with him. Thomas was not in the room when Jesus had given this revelation, appearance, and commission. What we do know, um, what we don't know is why Thomas wasn't with them. Was he wallowing in sadness? Was he trying to process the events of Jesus' death on his own? We don't know. But what we do know is at some point, he was actually united with the other disciples. And they had some ripping news to share for Thomas. They said, we have seen the Lord. That would have been a joyful moment to share with someone who's like, Thomas wasn't here. Let's share with him the news. We have seen the Lord, our Savior, our friend. He is alive. He's not dead. You can imagine their anticipation. Thomas is going to be thrilled. Thomas's response is less celebration and more skepticism, isn't it? He said to them, unless I see the, his hands, the mark of the nails place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Ergo, we call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas wants certainty. He's certain that he doesn't believe. Thomas wants to see with his own eyes. He wants to touch with his own hands. If he is to believe that this Jesus, who he saw crucified, is now alive, otherwise he will not believe. Now notice a couple things here about his doubt. Firstly, we're not to think that Thomas was the only one doubting. So we're not to think that Thomas, everyone else is just like on board straight away. Meanwhile, Thomas is just like struggling, limping behind with his doubt. After all, when Mary arrived at the tomb to embalm Jesus, you're not embalming a resurrected person, you're embalming a dead body. She thought when Jesus' body wasn't present that someone had stolen it, taken it away. When the, the women then tell the apostles, as Luke's gospel records, that this is how it's recounted. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So the apostles are thinking, you're out of your mind. Jesus is not alive. So it wasn't until Jesus appeared to Mary that she believed, and then Jesus to the apostles that they believed. And then what we see in this text, Jesus' appearance to Thomas, that he then believed. So he's not the only one who doubted. Secondly, his request for evidence isn't out of line of what the other evidence the disciples were shown. John 20, 20 records, Jesus showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad. So Thomas is just requesting the same evidence that the apostles themselves received. Now, that's understandable. I mean, Thomas has seen Jesus crucified, spear in the side, lifeless body laid in a tomb. Dead people don't rise. So before we think that here in the 21st century, 22nd, whatever century we're in, 
that we're like so modern in our understanding that dead people don't rise, that was a collective understanding back then as well. Now, there was understanding of a resurrection from the dead into eternity, but certainly not in this lifetime. Thomas is just saying, I, I, I want the evidence. So Thomas isn't saying there's nothing that convinced me. Thomas isn't kind of stamping his foot saying, I do not believe nothing could possibly convince me. So he's not defiant in that sense, and he's not kind of acting like he's an atheist who doesn't believe in God. He's skeptical. And he currently does not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He's got doubts. Thomas has doubts. I mean, there's several types of doubts people can have, can't they? It could be intellectual doubts. People trying to reconcile the Christian story from a historical perspective or trying to deal with scientific data. How do these two things work together? Some people have existential doubt where the claims of Christianity just don't seem to reconcile with their lived experience and the worldview that has been presented to them that they've grown up in. Then I think there's moral doubt. Moral doubt is kind of those who don't want it to be true because they want to live the way they want to live. So um, um, Aldous Huxley confesses this. He says, For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. Listen to this. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I don't want this to be true, because if this is true, that's going to stop me doing what I want to do. Therefore, I will not believe it. Kind of moral doubt. And then there's circumstantial doubt, I think. This is where life's circumstances, usually bad, seem to deflate one's belief to such an extent they question God's goodness or His presence or even His existence. This might present itself like a kind of religious disappointment, as in, I think, what we have here in Thomas's case. So Thomas's doubt is not, uh, is not unique in that sense. But it is clear he doesn't believe. Thomas can't seem to get his head around what his heart has not yet comprehended. I think he's struggling with a profound sense of religious disappointment. This man, Jesus, who he had followed, who he had admired, who he, who'd seen do miracles and perform signs and walk on water and calm storms, the one who Thomas was prepared to go and die with and die for, that previous couple of days, he saw him strung up on a tree. Thomas knows cursed is everyone on a tree. How is it that this Messiah, who I thought was the Messiah, has been cursed by God? I thought he was going to bring liberation, and yet we have a crucified Messiah. Tom's head and heart just can't get around the evidence that he's been working with. So I think we've got to be empathetic to Thomas's condition. <laughs> we can't just kind of put him in this category as if, like, that would never have been me. There's room for doubt, loved ones. There's room for questions, for query. For, for trying to get your head and your heart to wrap around the Christian stories and the Christian claims. In fact, we see in Scripture, God is quite comfortable to meet people with their doubts. And God is actually quite happy to even count them amongst His friends. You see in passages like Matthew 28, this is right before the Great Commission's given, where they're going to go into all the world and make disciples. You know what it says just before that? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee 
to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Amongst his 11, he's commissioning, some still doubted. Jesus is quite happy to come near doubters. He's happy to come here next to Thomas and to include them in his global plans for evangelism. So I wonder if you, like Thomas, have ever had doubts. Doubts about Jesus' claims. Doubts about the Christian faith. Do your doubts surface for a variety of reasons? Does it stay for a variety of time? How long does it last? I think that's the second observation we get from this text about doubts. There's room for doubts, but and there's different types of doubts, but doubts also differ in duration, don't they? Look here, and then notice that line in verse 26. It says, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Eight days. Eight days of doubt. Eight days of processing. Eight days of his other disciples rejoicing, celebrating, gladness of heart. Jesus is alive. There is hope. There is future. This thing is true. Thomas, in doubt. I reckon his soundtrack was probably the Smiths. His favorite color, gray. His avatar, Eeyore, from Winnie the Pooh. He's in this moment of doubts. Some doubts, friends, are, can be agonizingly long. And some can appear like a mist and go on in moments. There's different types of doubts. I, I remember facing some existential doubts in my early 20s. Um, I saw the lifestyle of someone else who was just kind of crushing it at life. It's, every kind of appearance, they, they looked good. I'm sure they were wealthy. I saw the car they were driving. I think, this guy's crushing your life. I reckon he's living. He does whatever the heck he wants. And here I am, currently trying to find a place to to, to sleep for two weeks in between houses. My possessions are able to fit in, the, in my car. And I'm thinking, I've kind of put all my chips on this Christianity thing, and I'm just not sure if this is real. I'm just not sure if, um, you know, I, I, this is the cost I want to make. I could be living it up like this person, pursuing wealth and career and personal desires and passions and, this existential doubt. And this, in this moment of this doubt, I, I recall just, just thinking to myself, all right, well, Darren, you, what are you going to do with the historical Jesus? Because we can talk about this all we want, but what are you going to do with, with, with the account of Jesus? What are you going to do with the Gospels? What are you going to do? What, what's, what's your other story to explain Jesus of Nazareth, if not the one that's presented to us from the Scripture? And um, I remember in that moment, just recognize, well, the, the evidence points that Jesus is, is, is alive. And, and if he's alive, well, then he says who he says he is. And if he says who he says he is, then this is what life is about. And, and then in that, um, I think the Spirit then kind of testified to my spirit that I was one of his children, a child of God, reassurance. And all this is kind of happening in the space of a few minutes at the gym. Existential doubt and crisis. Here's the point in all this. In God's providence, he allowed Thomas to remain in doubt for days. That means God was accomplishing something in Thomas's heart that he otherwise perhaps wouldn't have accomplished. We may doubt God 
in our doubts, but God doesn't doubt the good he wants to produce in them and through them. What does that mean for doubts then? Well, doubts then are an invitation for exploration. They're an opportunity to engage, to deal with actually our underlying beliefs. What do I truly believe right now? Now, I say underlying beliefs. I don't mean the beliefs you profess. I mean the beliefs you carry in your bones. What you truly believe about God gets road tested sometimes when you're having doubts. For my case, it, it was an underlying belief that godliness wasn't the path to most happiness. I, I had an underlying belief that that wasn't true. My doubt, my engaging with it, actually helped me to realize in, in my own disbelief and actually helped me to refine my faith. I've got a friend, Dan, who says, if something is true, then any doubts, rather than subverting faith, should only serve as a doorway to a deeper faith. God isn't afraid of doubts because he isn't afraid of truth. You see, when curious questions get met with credible answers, a greater faith can be formed. Sometimes God wants to knock away these false beliefs and instead replace them with something more sure and steady. Does that make sense? God is at work in the doubts. Another example might be um, some Christians falsely believe that things should go good um, when you start following Jesus. The things should always, the good things should come your way as a follower of Jesus. Jobs have to work out. Uh, houses need to be purchased. Um, relationships need to start. Relationships need to continue. If God is good, then these things must come my way. And then when those things don't come your way, what can begin to happen is you have doubts. Doubts of God's goodness, doubts of God's provision, maybe even spiraling to the doubts of God's existence. Why is that? Well, because you've got false beliefs that are in operation. They actually don't line up with reality and they don't correctly correspond to who God is. So I think in God and His providence allows us to go through those doubts, to deal with these underlying false views of Him. Most teenagers, you're going to go through um, a, a time or a season where you're going to be questioning the beliefs if you grew up in a Christian family. You're going to question, do I actually believe what mom and dad have taught me? Now, what we don't need to do is, is reject it simply because mom and dad taught you it. Praise God for that. Thank God for that. But you'll need to um, deal with it. You'll need to engage with it. You'll need to find a way to process and filter the truth of, that you have been raised up in being amongst God's community to discern what is true, to deal with doubts. Friends, Christianity, d doubts are meant to move us towards God, not move us away from Him. D doubts are an invitation for exploration, to probe, to mature, to grow, to deal with them. So Christianity has room for doubts. The question we ask us this morning is, do you have room for doubts? Have you had room for doubts in amongst God's people have you allowed the room for doubts that it may, may exist in your own heart? Are you aware, as one theologian observed, of the secret infidel in every believer's heart? Where there's like the believing self and the unbelieving self, and they have this eternal dialogue. Friends, this morning, my encouragement to you is make room for it. Do not suppress it. Give it the space to be engaged with in God's community, with God's word. There is room for doubt. But we don't want to stay in that room. This isn't like doubt is prized and, and, and excelled. I remember being around um, some people 
and um, a kind of movement maybe about 10, 15 years ago. And the tagline was, to believe is human, to doubt divine. And it was just everything, uncertainty was prized above all else. Lack of clarity, unknowing, doubt. And it was kind of celebrated. That's not the biblical picture either. Whilst there's room for doubt, the movement is to want us to move towards belief, to correspond with reality. Thomas wants evidence to come to belief. Jesus wants him to come to belief. The movement is towards belief. So let's see now how Jesus meets Thomas. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. So this is like a week later on a Sunday night. They, they count the days. They count the days and time with, with, with um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so we, we, we'd say seven days. They say eight days because they're including the days uh, in it with, with, the, with the evenings and the nights. So here they are, the next Sunday evening. It's been eight days. Doors are locked again. What does that tell us? The disciples are still fearful. What do we learn from that? Quite simply, the peace that Jesus has pronounced them takes a little while to sink in. Isn't that the truth for all of us? Jesus comes to bring us, peace be with you. The third time now, he says, peace be with you, a greeting and a deeper laid idea of peace. It's still taking a little bit to sink in. But what is important this time is what? Who's now with the disciples? Thomas. Thomas is with the disciples. Now, that's good because the disciples are inside. This time, Thomas is with them. Now, what this kind of tells us, I think, is it's important because Thomas isn't by himself anymore. Thomas hasn't been kind of sitting in his own little silo, processing his thoughts, processing his doubts, disconnected from God's community. What's he doing? He's with God's people in the midst of his processing his doubts. Friends, this is the best and safest place to be as you're processing your doubts. As you're working through these things, remain with God's people. Walk it out in community and transparency. If you know someone who's wrestling through doubts and questions, don't just keep them at arm's length. Bring them in close. Here, Thomas has the right people around him for the questions that he's asking. Second, notice that Jesus' provision in hearing Thomas's request. So Thomas has said, hey, unless this happens, I will not believe. Notice what Jesus, Jesus says, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, how did Jesus know what Thomas had asked for? Well, I think there's just some divine insight going on here with Jesus. Jesus knows, after all, what's in a person's heart. I think Jesus here is, is, is teaching us that, that he, he, he's graciously meets his people where they're at. Thomas has these doubts. Jesus has his ear and attentive to him. Jesus is attentive to the doubts of his people. Jesus is not indifferent to your doubts. He's not insensitive to them. He's not dismissive of them. He wants to meet you in the midst of those doubts where you're questioning him. He hears your cries and he knows how to come and to minister to you. Now, it is important to acknowledge here that Thomas already had enough evidence to believe. Now make note of this. Thomas already had enough evidence to believe. Firstly, Thomas had seen and heard Jesus' teaching about his death and resurrection. Thomas had seen Jesus perform signs pointing to his identity and divinity. He had seen and heard Jesus' teaching about his divine identity, where he came from, 
who he was and where he was going. He then had eyewitness testimony from credible sources, his closest friends, of Jesus' resurrection. And yet, Thomas still doesn't believe. He had enough evidence to believe. So, so what is going on here then? Why is it that Jesus just kind of hasn't left him and say, all the best, Thomas, you had enough? Why is Jesus coming and meeting him and showing himself to him, causing him to believe? Well, firstly, he's not commending to Thomas a kind of blind faith, just belief. What's Jesus doing here? You know, he says, blessed are those who believe. Blessed are those who have not seen but believe. So what Jesus is saying in that moment, he's not saying that blessed are those who believe out of thin air. Those who just want it to be true and it's true. That's not what he's saying. Far from it. And we see from 30 to 31, the foundation for belief is based off the evidence. The signs that Jesus performed. That's where our faith is founded. Eyewitness testimony. So why then appear physically to Thomas? I think for three reasons. We've kind of covered the first one. This is simply a gracious, the gracious act of our Lord Jesus to Thomas, to meet him where he's at, in his grief, in his disbelief, and in his doubt. Just as he met Mary, just as he met the apostles, he comes and graciously meets Thomas, which is exactly what he said he would do back from chapter 16. A little while, and then you will be glad. Secondly, he needed to commission Thomas as an apostle. You see, an apostle is someone who was sent by Jesus. And they had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. We know that from Acts 1, where they're deciding to add another apostle. And who's it going to be? Well, someone had to see his ministry and, and witness the resurrected Jesus. And since Thomas wasn't around when the marching orders were given, Thomas still needs to be commissioned because he's going to be sent out to declare the gospel message. So he needed to have the eyewitness testimony to the truth. Jesus needed commission Thomas as an apostle. Third thing is, is to show the way that people will come to believe in Jesus moving forward. Thomas here serves as a sign that this isn't the, the normative pattern moving forward. I think that's really clear, isn't it, Jesus' response? Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Again, he's not saying blessed are those who just want it to be true. No, blessed are those, and that goes to the, say in verse 31, 30, 31, who encounter the historical account of Jesus and come to believe. So this morning, if you're here and you're thinking, I'd love to encounter Jesus. Actually, if you're a true God, I want to encounter you and know you. Jesus, in his own words, is saying, well, you can but it's not going to be found in, in asking the physical Jesus to come appear in front of you. But rather, it's to be found in this word, in this testimony, in this account, the historical data right here. That's how it works. You know, children at, at, at times will kind of say things to parents about certain conditions if parents love them, depending on what they do. Now, I don't know if parents have experienced this. I know some children who will say things like, Give me this lolly, otherwise you're being mean. If you give me this ice block, then you'll be lovely, if not naughty daddy. <laughs> now, these children happen to be in my house. I'm sure your children don't do this. But what they're kind of basically saying is, hey, dad, unless you give me this lolly, unless you give me this ice block, you're naughty, you're bad. I'm making a judgment call on you. I think what happens is some people start to do that with God. 
Hey, God, unless you come through for me here, uh, I'll believe in you. If he just appeared in front of me, I'll, I'll believe in you. They're doing the same thing. And if, if, if God has to work off our scorecard, then he ceases to be God. God works off his scorecard. He works off, off his means of revelation. And there's enough here to come to encounter him. That's how Christianity operates. So read this gospel. Listen to this account. Make sense of the data. Make sense of the story. See if it's coherent. See if it's credible. John thinks it's enough in the story of the Gospels that you would understand of God's love for sinners. It's God's love towards the needy and to the doubters. That, that Jesus died for sinners to divert the holy wrath of God away from them. So they could be reconciled to Christ and to the Father for all eternity. Follow the evidence and so graciously encounter the true and risen Lord Jesus. That's the command from Jesus to, to, to Thomas, and that's the command for, from Jesus to us today. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What would it look like to believe? Jesus tells Thomas to believe. What might it look like? I think we see that in Thomas's response, verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to hear those words from Thomas's mouth? Wouldn't the other disciples have been waiting eight agonizing days for Thomas to get it? And he confesses, my Lord and my, my God. He has gone from the depth of doubt to the heights of doxology. Carson calls this the high watermark of faith in John's gospel. It doesn't get any better than this. Thomas the doubter, friends, Thomas the confessor, my Lord and my God. He sees it, he gets it, and he just cries out in worship of Jesus. Of Jesus. And what's beautiful in John's gospel, you've got this presentation of who Jesus is, because the whole book's about trying to know who is Jesus. You've got in chapter one, in the opening verses, he introduces us to him, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So very from the beginning, Jesus is God. At the very end now, right as he's wrapping things up, what do we get? G Thomas confessing that Jesus is God. You've got this bookends of belief. This is who he is. Listen in. Now notice, Jesus receives this proclamation from Thomas. Jesus doesn't correct him and tells him to kind of simmer down. Yeah, it's yeah, calling me God. Let's just, well, let's bring that down a bit. I'm, I'm important, but I'm not divine. You know? and he doesn't kind of ask him to bring it down. Now, the apostles, if you've read Acts before, the apostles are, are out preaching and teaching, proclaiming the gospel, doing signs, and some crowds start bowing down, worshiping, calling them gods. And the apostles are like tearing their cloaks, saying, no way, hey, put it away. We're, we're men just like you. Please, we're not gods. Jesus here receives it. Now, why would he receive it? Well, he receives it because it's true. If he received a statement that was false, that's called blasphemy, punishable by death. Jesus here receives it. Jesus blesses his pronouncement. Verse 29, Jesus can't bless blasphemy. Jesus says, blessed are those who believe those who will not see and believe. Now, how was it that Thomas came to this conclusion about Jesus? How was it that Thomas 
kind of going from, I don't believe to my Lord and my God. Well, I don't think it was simply because of the resurrection alone. I remember chatting with Nath a couple weeks back when we were preparing this before I got sick. And, and um, like if, if someone came, if someone died here, Lord willing, no one's going to die. Well, we're all going to die, Lord willing, we're going to die at some point. But, but if someone were to die, let's, I'm just going to go with Kurt because he's on guitar. But if Kurt were to die and then appear to me eight days later, my, my instinct response wouldn't be, Kurt, my Lord, my God, and start worshipping Kurt. I'd be very confused. I'd be astounded, but I wouldn't bend down in worship of Kurt. That, that, that's, not, that's not enough. But so I think what Thomas has done is, is, Thomas has put all the pieces together, friends. I mean, think about it. He's, he's, I mean, he's, he's, over the last eight days, over his time with he's kind of put it all together. I mean, J- Jesus walked on water. He turned water into wine. He calmed the storms. He, he, he forgave sins. He said before Abraham was that he existed. He, 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 he was said he was Lord of the Sabbath. And the Father's going to honor him as he honors him, the, the Father. That his, that his body's going to be destroyed and, and rebuilt in three days. Uh, and, and here he is in front of me, the resurrected Jesus. I mean, I put all that together. And what else can I say but my Lord and my God? Thomas puts all the evidence together. And he has this triumphant confession. Notice Thomas's confession is personal. My Lord, my God, he's brought it all the way in. And for Thomas, the, the divinity of Jesus isn't some doctrine that keeps it a hand's length. Oh, that's brilliant. Let's study him to find out if he's really. No, no, he's brought it all the way in. The true account of the resurrected Jesus. Thomas is obeying Jesus' words, do not disbelieve, but believe. Bring it all the way in. It's deeply personal. My Lord, Lord of creation, Lord of the universe, Lord of glory, my God, my all. You got it all. My heart, my life, my glory, my ways, my schedule, my finance, my relationship, my emotions, my God, it's all yours. Thomas has brought it all the way in. I wonder, Christians, this morning, have you done that? For those of you who confess Jesus is my Lord and my God, have you, it's a personal have you brought it all the way in? Have you repented from sin and walk in faith? Has it, has it reached your very inner being? Has it become personal and dear to you, my Lord and my God? <coughs> Excuse me. Now, some people here are going to object to this claim of Jesus and this confession of Thomas and say, well, Jesus really isn't God. And Jesus' divinity, friends, has been under attack since history. Jesus' divinity is under attack by the Jews in this gospel. It's under attack in the first century with adoptionism, the second century with docetism, and the fourth century with Arianism, 17th century with Unitarianism, all these heresies denying who Jesus actually is. John has been quite clear through his gospel on who Jesus is. He's more than a man. He's the Son of God. He is God, the Messiah. It's attested to by Thomas's confession. It's proven by Jesus' resurrection. And, and, and those who want to reject here in this claim what Thomas is saying, go do some crazy exegetical gymnastics. See, some, some recreate this scene the following. That's, that's how they recreate it, to explain when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, that doesn't mean what he means. 
So firstly, they, they, they kind of say, well, when he addresses Jesus, he's saying, my Lord. And then when he says, my God, he kind of looks up to heaven and says, my God. It's one way they recreate it. Now, the problem with that is, is the word and. Because he's saying, my Lord and my God. Now, the second problem is, he's not addressing God the Father in heaven. He's addressing Jesus. You've got to recreate the whole sentence. You see that? He says, Thomas answered him. Who's the him? Him is Jesus. He's answering Jesus. And what does he say to Jesus? My Lord, my God. It's a clear reading of the text. It's a clear crescendo of John's gospel. To see Jesus as Lord, to see him as God, and so believe in him. I wonder, do you believe that this morning? Have you come to believe that Jesus is Lord? Jesus is God. And that it bears upon your life. That changes everything in your life. You get eternal life by believing in him. My Lord and my God. Thomas's problem was doubt. Jesus' provision, the revelation of who he is, moves him to belief. Now look lastly at John's point. John has given us enough evidence, his point and purpose of this whole gospel, whole gospel. It's right there in verse 30, 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John has written and recorded for us is sufficient and it is enough. It's, um, it's, it's, again, this is quite remarkable. We look at the whole Gospel of John and you've got two critiques of people coming to belief. So we've got, we've got um, Thomas here, who's the, the gentle rebuke by Jesus is basically, Thomas, you're asking more than what's required. You actually don't need this because people are going to come and believe without seeing. You've got kind of, you're asking too much. But back in chapter 1, you've got a guy called Nathaniel, and, and Jesus kind of corrects Nathaniel by this kind of easy believism. Hey, Nathaniel, you're kind of believing a bit too quick almost. I don't know if you can remember the story. It was a few weeks ago um, that, that we looked at it. Nathaniel hears from one of his disciples, um, hears from one of his friends, that we found the Messiah, and he's from Nazareth. And you remember Nathaniel's response? Gee, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He doesn't believe, you're kidding me, there's no Messiah coming out of Nazareth. And then Jesus approaches him and says, Nathaniel, you're the one I saw under the tree. And then, and then Nathaniel's like, I believe he is the king of Israel. You are the sent one. And, and Jesus is like, you, you, you believe because I said I saw you under a tree? You will see greater things than this. So Nathaniel's got all ready to sign up, you're the, you're the Messiah, kind of easy believism. Hey, we'll hold the horses, you're going to see greater things than this. And then you've got Thomas over here asking too much, demanding too much, and Jesus comes in and meets him. So, so friends, you've got, you, you've got this, so what's, what do you need? What's enough? How, don't want easy believism, don't want to make things too hard. What do I need to know in order to believe in Jesus? John's told us, read this gospel. I've recorded it for you. This is enough to work with, to make up for your own mind if Jesus is who he says he is. Thomas, his profession of Jesus triggers Jesus to then think about how those in the future will come to believe him. How will people come to believe in Jesus in the future? Well, it's not going to be through eyewitness observation. That's how Thomas came to believe. But rather, it's going to come through eyewitness testimony. 
eyewitness testimony. The apostles, the women, plus 500 others, as, as 1 Corinthians record, they got eyewitness testimony. So eyewitness observation of Jesus resurrected who he was. We have their record. We have eyewitness testimony that testifies to it. Friends, we believe so many things that we have not seen. Your whole week is filled with you believing things you did not see. That's called history. Before everything was recorded on a video, you just didn't see. You just found out about it. Eyewitness credible sources. We all believe that. That's part of life. Here John's given us eyewitness testimony. And he's given us enough material to work with. I think, in fact, it was Keller who noted that John's gospel covers just 21 or 22 days of Jesus' life. That's it. 22 days of what happened in the life of Jesus. That's enough for you to make your mind up on who he is. So look at the signs. See where they're pointing. John, here his point, wants us to see it's found on evidence, not subjective personal experience. Friends, if your faith is built on the fact that you think it's true, therefore it is true, it will not stand the test of time. Life will beat you down. And it will erode your faith. Personal, subjective experience is not enough stable ground. I remember, um, recall reading, uh, Don Carson was sharing about an Anglican Archbishop from Adelaide. He was on TV and um, he was asked the question, what would happen if somehow evidence was shown to you that beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus' body was still in a tomb? And it was definitely Jesus. You could see the, the scars and the spear and it was identified at him. He, he, he did not rise from the dead. Unequivocal, what would that mean for you? And the archbishop responded, it wouldn't do anything to it. I believe Jesus is risen in my heart. Now, friends, that's problematic. Because it means that belief is not based on objective reality but rather subjective personal experience. Now, don't hear me wrong. There ought to be personal experience of God. You ought to subjectively and objectively experience the true and living God. But experience, that kind of personal experience is not to be foundational to your belief, but rather experiential. So experience the life that Jesus wants to give to those who believe. Please, experience the life. That's John's point. I want you to read this. I want you to come and believe. And then listen, I want you to have eternal life. What is that life? As, as um, John 17, 3 says, eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the true, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life, to know God, to have a life that's found in forgiveness of sin, to have your guilty conscience cleansed, to be given a new heart with new affections and new desires to be reconciled to your creator, to be removed away from sitting under the wrath of a holy God. Eternal life. A new purpose now, to make disciples and announce God's word to the world. This is the kind of life you can have and it's available by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But hear me. Your belief in that today whether you believe it's true or not, does not make it true. For it is founded outside of you, in history, that Jesus of Nazareth died, was buried, and rose again. So what will you do with him? Jesus says, do not disbelieve, 
but believe. This is how we have an amazing encounter with God today. Not through some miraculous appearance, but through his word. Through the testimony that we have here in scripture. Lee Strobel was an atheist who was an investigative journalist. And after his wife uh, got converted, he decided to investigate the, the truth claims of Christianity of Jesus. And as he did it, he looked at it and put it all together and it came to coming to faith, believing that this was credible and this was true. He followed the evidence. He didn't get a physical appearance of Jesus in his mirror one night. No, no, he engaged with God's word, the true living God through his word. That's how people come to faith today, as Romans 10 says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So are you hearing today? Are we listening? This is why we gather here as a church, to hear God's word proclaimed, to come under it, to experience it, to experience the life that it offers us. So how we respond today from this text? Well, once you know there's room for doubt, Tim Keller says, the strongest form of faith is one that has wrestled with doubt. So friends, if you've got doubt, search credible answers. This is a safe space to engage with it, to deal with it. If you doubt, if you have intellectual doubt, my encouragement to you is come and see. Come and see. Come and see the story. Come and make up for your own mind what you make of Jesus, all the gospel accounts. Maybe you have people at your workplace, friends and family, who, who just, their objections to Jesus is simply that they don't know the story. They haven't seen whether it's credible. They just doubt because they haven't come and seen. Invite them. Read the gospel with them. Invite them to read the, one of the gospels. Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. Maybe some of you have doubts in your heart. I want you to know, we want, you to, we, we want to come beside you. We want to come along beside you. Those of you right now who are hurting, you're experiencing pain in your life, in ways that is making you question whether God is good and you question whether they're even real. We want to come beside you. Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. So have mercy. We've got mercy for you. It doesn't mean we're going to celebrate doubt or promote some vague idea that no one can really know God. No, no. But we're going to have mercy. We're going to come beside you. And for those of you who maybe doubts against Christianity are more defiant, you just don't want it to be true because you just want to live life your own way. Well, I want you to know God's word's going to come at you. It's either going to come at you in this lifetime or you're going to experience God coming at you in judgment. Hear his word now. Respond. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in the true and living God. The Father has appointed his son to judge and has proven it by raising him from the dead. So do not disbelieve, but rather believe. This is our prayer this morning, that all of us would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, help those whose heart says this morning, I believe. Please help my unbelief. Would you help us hear your word and respond with belief today? to take you at your word, and to trust you. We pray in your son's name. Amen.